This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Federal News Network reports that the Navy Reserve is overhauling its job structure to determine what will work best for the future of the force. The process has so far eliminated hundreds of existing jobs while also adding hundreds of new positions. Leaders at the Navy Reserve say they're about 80% through the process. Close to 400 members of the Marines have been discharged after refusing to get vaccinated for COVID-19. No one from the Reserve Marines has been separated. 95% of active duty Marines are fully vaccinated and 88% of reserve forces are either fully or partially vaccinated. In total, the Marine Corps has approved 627 medical exemptions and three religious exemptions. The Defense Department has fewer than 90 days to create a plan to prevent civilian casualties. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin issued a memo for the DOD to put forward an action plan to mitigate and respond to civilian harm. The action plan outlines how the department will take steps toward its goal and the resources necessary to implement recommendations. This memo comes after the DOD sponsored several studies relating to civilian harm. After the Manhattan Project that produced the first nuclear bombs during World War II, the national laboratories were created under the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. Sandia National Laboratories is one of those labs, with its primary site located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Laura McGill is Deputy Laboratories Director for Nuclear Deterrence and Chief Technology Officer at Sandia National Laboratories. Laura, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Sandia has been around for over 70 years. Give us a brief history about the country's national labs and Sandia in particular and why it was created. Okay, well, it's it's all a legacy of the Manhattan Project that was uh, run out of Los Alamos. And back in 1945, they established the Z Division, which was created to design and build the non-nuclear components for the weapon systems. And so in 1949, that became Sandia National Labs and was part of that legacy that established the National Laboratory System under the Department of Energy, which became the Department of Energy. So let's talk specifically about the nuclear deterrence mission. How do you ensure the weapons are safe so they don't go off when they're not supposed to and reliable so they're ready when they're needed? Hopefully never. Right, that's exactly what we're, what we're shooting for. So um, the, the, the weapons are designed with a, a strategy and a philosophy of always, never, that they will always work when required to and never. And we actually have uh, high levels of reliability that we build into the system with redundant designs and, and components that are specifically designed to be only used under the authority of the president when needed. And so that's a big part of our core design philosophy and and also a part of our strategy is we continue to develop new technologies. We ensure that each new weapon system is even more safe and reliable than the ones that preceded it. So how is testing done for nuclear weapons now? Because we're obviously not detonating them anymore. 
No, we haven't done any underground nuclear detonation tests since the 1990s. And in fact, the, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was signed in 1996. But because of all the, the extensive testing that was done before that, the data that was collected, we've been able to develop and validate ex a very ex extensive and uh, comprehensive models and simulations that can uh, allow us to simulate the, the phenomenon and the effects that we can test our systems against. So what are you doing, Laura, on the modernization front, since some of these weapons have been around for decades? Yes, we have systems that are decades old, as you said. So the modernization program is focused on uh, looking as we every year we annually assess the entire stockpile and we identify areas to improve the reliability and the performance of the systems. So with that, we're able to then embed new technologies to actually give new life to these legacy systems and extend the ability to, to support them over longer lifetimes. So are you able to talk a little bit more about what those new technologies are? Well, a lot of it has to do with the microelectronics. You know, it, you know, the original systems use things like vacuum tubes, but now we're using, you know, strategic uh, uh, rad hardened microelectronics in the parts, which uh, also automatically increases the reliability as we reduce part count, but it also improves the performance of the system as well. So just essentially taking those new technologies and being able to um, also account for systems that are life limited, uh, because some of the the components that are embedded in our systems have shorter lifespans and we've been able to take new technologies so that they can be out in the field longer and don't have to come back for recertification for longer periods. And what does it mean for the nuclear stockpile to be quote flexible and responsive? Well, so that's, that's part of the, the nuclear triad is we want to be able to prosecute different kinds of targets again to protect us against different kinds of threats. And that includes using systems that are either ground launch, like the ICBMs, or the air launch capabilities, or sea launch, you know, that's embedded, you know, in our submarines, ready to be launched at any time. So we have to build in the capability for our systems to survive all kinds of hostile environments, not, not just from the flight environments and the trajectories, but even, you know, intensity in radiation and uh, high energy density shock environments as well. How are you working with the other national labs on the nuclear enterprise, such as Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, others? Oh, they're, they're great partners with us. So we, we call ourselves the Tri-Labs. And we work with uh, Lawrence Livermore in California and Los Alamos, which is just a little ways up the road here in New Mexico. And uh, we have close partnerships with them. We, we develop our strategies for our modernization programs, and we work to share our models. And we really work together to ensure that as, a, as an entire complex, we are able to deliver the capability. And that also extends to Kansas City, which is uh, the security complex that a lot of the non-nuclear components are built at. So we work with them and the other elements of the national security enterprise to ensure that the final weapon systems meets all its requirements. And because we're working together, we can anticipate all the system interactions and account for them. And Laura, can you tell me a little bit about the workforce you have at Sandia, about how many people work there? Yeah, it's, well, I'll tell you first, it's an incredibly talented workforce. I'm blessed, blessed to be here with the, with the brilliant people I get to work with every day. Uh, overall, we have about 13,000 engineers. 
Uh, actually, we have a lot of remote workers, you know, distributed around the country at this point, but our primary uh, site is here in Albuquerque. We also have a large site in Livermore, uh, just across the street from Lawrence Livermore National Lab, since we work so closely with them. And uh, our workforce includes this whole spectrum of engineers, mathematicians, scientists in every field you can imagine. Uh, because over the years, our work has grown in addition to the nuclear deterrence mission, we're also doing things in the area of national security, global security. And we will uh, talk about that, Laura, right after this really quick break, okay? Coming next, we'll continue the conversation with Laura McGill about the work of Sandia National Labs and keeping the nuclear stockpile safe, secure, and reliable. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Laura McGill. She is a Deputy Laboratories Director for Nuclear Deterrence and Chief Technology Officer at Sandia National Laboratories. So Laura, at what point did the lab move from just nuclear weapons to a broader mission of solving complex national security problems? Well, that happened over time because we've flexed to be able to embrace whatever you know threat has faced our nation. So that evolved over the years to include any kind of security threat to the country. So that's where we expanded from just the nuclear deterrence mission to national security, which includes you know, missile defense and our, our hypersonic uh, flight test vehicles program, global security, protecting the nation and our allies with, with systems and security protections on their sites, and including even things like you know, climate security and uh, also chemical, uh, biological, radiological, and nuclear defense and uh, pretty much any mission that we can bring to bear to serve our country. Can you tell us a little bit more about the hypersonic um, technologies that you're working on? Yeah, so, so actually we've had great success with our hypersonics uh, flight vehicles. We've uh, done some recent tests on those and we've actually been able to demonstrate you know, sustained and controlled flight with hypersonic systems that are gonna be the, the future of our defense posture. So one of your missions is to respond to national emergencies to help solve complex challenges. What are you currently working on with that respect? Well, we have a number of ways that we respond. Obviously, COVID is the, the biggest national threat that we've responded to. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of, of the role we've served in that. Uh, early in the pandemic, we uh, were able to invoke our high performance computing to do simulations to recognize where things like ventilators and uh, you know, intensive care units needed to be deployed for you know, 3,000 counties around the country. We did all those simulations to help understand what needed, uh, what support was needed. And we also actually invented things like, you know, just a very uh, quick design that could be used by any, uh, any partner to stand up uh, a shelter for uh, health workers to be able to administer tests and vaccines. And what about in the past? Because I understand not only did you respond to the, in the early stages of the pandemic response, but also like oil spills. Yes, we were part of the, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill response. Uh, we helped uh, come up with the solution for how it would be capped and uh, did a lot of the analysis to understand how much of the, the uh, petroleum um, products were you know, leaking into the Gulf area. We were also pulled into the, the Columbia shuttle uh, re-entry flight failure to help understand you know, how the, uh, the, the tiles had been um, damaged. And we also 
in, uh, invented some of the technology that was used in future shuttle missions to be able to, after launch, be able to assess the health of the, the shuttle, uh, the ceramic tiles on the shuttle. So what are some of the one-of-a-kind facilities that you have um, and operate at Sandia? Well, that, that's part of the fun of working here. The, the research and development the laboratories here are just incredible. Uh, some of the most important ones, especially for the nuclear deterrence mission, are our ability uh, to um, simulate and actually actually not simulate but actually uh, expose our systems to you know high uh, radiation environments that's our annular core reactor uh, research facility and we also have our z machine which allows us to bring a uh, high power and density compress it in time to um, to simulate the the shock effects of, of high energy density physics and you know, you talked about how you work with the other national labs. I wonder how you work with um, DOD labs on national security problems. Oh, they're they're close partners with us as well. You know, we have we have partnerships with uh, all of the government labs, including uh, DOD labs and a lot of other uh, federally funded research development uh, organizations, FFRDCs. So we uh, we regularly share our our simulations and our capabilities, and actually make some of those facilities available. Um, on a you know non-interference basis to uh, to be able to develop the technology and understanding of our defense systems. Well, speaking about developing the technology, how do you effectively transition new technologies that you develop in the lab to the commercial sector? Yeah, that's actually a, a core part of our mission. We we specifically don't compete against industry. We do have the ability because of the the brilliant talent we have here and the the infrastructure we have to develop new technologies which we regularly hand off to uh, academic institutions, uh, government and industry. Uh, one recent example I can give you is uh, in the area of uh, quantum computing. We have uh, the QScout system, which is a quantum computer testbed, which is uh, designed to be open access for any organization, individual or organization who's doing research in quantum computing to be able to access the testbed to get reliable qubits to uh, try out their algorithms. And finally, Laura, I know this, this is something you're passionate about, which is encouraging more young women and girls into the STEM fields. Why is that so important to you and, and how do you do that? Yeah, well, it's important to me, one, because you know I've had such, a, uh, such an incredible opportunity through my career to be involved in really um, important work and fascinating work that's just kept me energized through my whole career. But the other reason is we need all the engineers and scientists and mathematicians we can get. So the more we are able to get out there and, uh, and um, engage with students at all ages, especially in their you know, elementary and middle school years, to get them inspired about pursuing you know, STEM careers. And, and there's actually no better you know, influencer on them than being able to talk with somebody who they can you know, see that looks like them and who, could, who enjoys their work and can talk to them about it in a way that they understand and uh, get them excited about uh, a career that's uh, gonna be exciting and support them for their entire life. All right, well, Laura, we appreciate that. We appreciate your work you're doing out there in Sandia. Thank you very much. You're welcome, thanks. Up next, the Defense Department is still operating under a continuing resolution. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we look at the implications of a CR on national security. We'll be right back.
The fiscal 2022 National Defense Authorization Act has passed, but Congress has yet to pass the annual appropriations bill, meaning the Defense Department is still operating under a continuing resolution. My guest says that the failure to pass a budget has dire implications for national security. Retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Pranaro is chairman of the board of the National Defense Industrial Association. He's the author of the book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. General, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Glad to be here, Mimi. So as I said, we're, um, the appropriations bill hasn't passed and it's February. We're still under a continuing resolution. What's the root of the problem? Well, the root of the problem is Congress has failed to do its job and they failed to do their job at a time when the world is probably more dangerous and unstable than any time I can remember in the almost 50 plus years I've been working in the national security arena. We've got external and internal threats and those risks are only greatly increased because Congress has failed to pass the defense bill and at a time when we need increased deterrence if we look at what's going on with Russia and China. China's on the march, Russia's on the move, North Korea's on the advance, Iran's on the verge, inflation's on the rise, and the Department of Defense is losing close to $6 billion a month in purchasing power under the continuing resolution. As you mentioned, we're all in well, I, I do want to talk to you about purchasing yeah. power, but you previously served as a top staffer on the Senate Armed Services Committee. So you saw what was right. going on inside of, of Congress. What's the solution? Give me some specifics. Well, the specifics are, first of all, on a bipartisan basis, the authorizing committees, the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, have sent to the president, he signed into law the fiscal year, as you mentioned, 22, Authorization Act at $790 billion, which is $36 billion higher than the level we're currently under in the continuing resolution. And that's the model for the appropriation process. The appropriators, if you left it to Pat Leahy, Dick Shelby, Rosa DeLauro, and Kay Granger, they'd fix this in a heartbeat. But the leadership is involved, and there are those that are advocating to keep a flat budget uh, because they think gridlock helps in the mid-years. Anybody that thinks an FY21 flat level is better than an increase of 36 billion didn't pass fourth grade arithmetic. So basically, the Congress has got to do its job and they have to do it right away. We've only got uh, 18 days before the CR runs out and they still don't have a deal. You know, you said that China's purchasing power is greater than that of the US. Explain that. Well, China the U gets more for their yuan than we get for our buck. If you look at where we are right now in constant dollars in the Department of Defense, uh, assuming that you know we pass the appropriation bill, um, we are higher in constant dollars than the peak of the Reagan buildup, and yet the force is 50% smaller. That's because we've had this huge increase in the overhead in the Department of Defense, we've had large increases in the cost of our major weapons, and we've had large personnel increases, none of which China has to deal with, quite frankly. And therefore, for example, they have one shipyard in China that can produce 11 naval combatants a year, which is greater than all of our for-profit shipyards can do. So we, we've allowed China to get a march on us. We still have the same force structure in the Pacific that we had in the year 2000, and yet we claim that we're involved in a pivot to the Pacific. So, All right, so well, we, what we're we, not keeping up. What do we do about that? I mean, how do we bring those costs down? How do we improve our purchasing power so we are getting more bang for the buck? Well, the first thing you've got to do is pass the funding bill. Without funding, basically, if we have this go for a whole year, the DOD is going to lose $100 billion in funds, and that covers the entire department. 
It covers the intelligence agency, including the CIA and NSA that are keeping up, trying to advise our leadership on what Russia is up to and China is up to. It affects the warfighting commands, a European command that deals with Russia, Indo-Pacific. And so the bottom line is Congress needs to do its job and they need to improve oversight so that we get more bang for the buck for the dollars we spend. All right, well, we've talked about Congress doing their job. What do you recommend to senior Pentagon leaders? I think the senior Pentagon leaders have got to basically understand that they're spending the taxpayers' dollars. This is not their money. I hate to say this, but I've been around government long enough to know that people in government uh, don't have an appreciation of the value of time or the value of money. And when you look at the cost of the new weapon systems, at the cost of, of personnel, the deferred compensation we pay for people, we have 2.4 million retirees and only 1.3 million people serving on active duty. The health care budget in DOD is $52 billion a year with 10 million beneficiaries of which 5.6 million are retirees and their dependents. And so we've got to look at the overall whole and, and the Pentagon leaders have got to be willing to make, they always say we're going to make some tough decisions. We're going to get rid of old weapon systems. But again, again, we're spending more in constant dollars than the peak of the Reagan buildup and the force is 50% smaller. So our military leaders need to change that direction. General, do you think the DOD is prepared for a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine or even a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan? That's a, so I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day intelligence, but I will tell you right now that um, we've put, what, 8,000 or 9,000 troops on alert uh, of the 1.3 million active duty people we have. That's no match for what Russia has arrayed on three flanks of Ukraine. Two, as I said, we've not increased our force structure in the Pacific while China has quadrupled their force structure, rattling the saber against Taiwan. They beefed up their amphibious shipping capability. They beefed up their subsurface capability. They beefed up their long range missiles. They're definitely threatening the independence of Taiwan. So our military needs to basically, again, we're giving them plenty of money it, it may be that they just need to get it refocused in the right areas. We're not going to go head to head with Russia. The president and our military leaders have already said that. The other problem we're having is, uh, you know, the question of deterrence. I mean, Germany basically has totally capitulated because they've lost energy independence. They depend on Russia for their energy. And there's one of the richest countries in NATO. They don't even meet their own NATO obligations. So when Russia looks at NATO, he sees some pretty big gaps. So again, all these things need to be corrected. All right. Well, General, thank you so much for coming in. Nice talking to you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies 
to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.